Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The City Chiefs have won it. World in my ass. Woo! It's Mahomes' house. <laughs> okay, so I was really torn about this one. You know why, right? I love Joe Mahomes. Joe Burrow's your guy. And Joe Burrow. I like love both of these guys. I was really torn, and I just kept re-watching it and re-watching it. Bobby's like, we're not talking about the Vikings. Yeah, that's exciting. <laughs> Are you a mind reader this morning? Poppy, <laughs> how long have I known you? But the fact that Patrick Mahomes did that on one good ankle is incredible. Did you see him like the whole time he's like hopping around? I'm like, is he going to make it? Is he going to make he it? He had that high ankle sprain eight yeah. days ago, I think. Yeah. It's amazing that he played that one. Everybody's like, wait, oh. Oh, we're on TV right now. Good morning. <laughs> Everybody, good morning, everyone. For the first time in Super Bowl history, two black quarterbacks will lead their teams in the big game. So who's the favorite and who's the underdog? We're going to have much more on the historic matchup. We're going to have that in just a moment. Also taking a turn here, new questions this morning. In Memphis, will the death of Tyree Nichols lead to actual federal nationwide police reform? That is a huge question this week. This as Memphis shuts down its Scorpion Street Crimes Unit. Also this. And I ran over to Maggie and uh, actually, I think I tried to turn Paul over first. Remarkable video as we are now hearing what Alec Murdoch told detectives on the night that he allegedly, according to prosecutors, murdered his own wife and son. Something in particular that investigators noticed that raised their suspicions. But just in case you were wondering what we were talking about, come on, you know, it's official. The Super Bowl 57 matchup is set. It's Eagles versus Chiefs, Philadelphia versus Kansas City, and Jalen Hurts versus Patrick Mahomes. This is the first time in Super Bowl history there will be two black starting quarterbacks. The Empire State Building lit up to congratulate both teams, but... Uh, that was a problem for some fans we need to tell you about. <laughs> People were a little bit upset about that in New York. We're going to ask Mayor Adams about that a little bit later. And meanwhile, overjoyed Eagles fans filing the streets of Philadelphia and filling the streets of Philadelphia as well, celebrating their victory. Some were even spotted climbing poles, which the city had greased up. <laughs> ahead of time. Yes, that has to happen in Philadelphia. I used to live there. Coy Wire joining us this morning. You can attest to that. Good morning to you, Coy. This is going to be very interesting. We have two black starting quarterbacks and brothers facing off for the first time in history. This is going to be an interesting matchup. Incredible storylines. Hertz and Mahomes, uh, quintessential leaders, uh, both mental fortitude, their physical toughness, their uh, a we, not me mentality. And then the brothers, that's, they're called the Kelsey Bowl. Travis Kelsey for the Chiefs facing Jason Kelsey for the Eagles, first brothers to ever face off in the Super Bowl. It'll all play out uh, in 13 days' time in Glendale, Arizona. Eagles versus Chiefs. 
with a trip to the Super Bowl on the line. Placement is down. Butker's kick is up. The spinning kick high, floating in the air, and it is good, good, good. A nail-biter in the AFC Championship. The Chiefs, who beat the Bengals in a revenge rematch of last season's overtime AFC title game. During a frigid night at Arrowhead Stadium, the bad blood between these two teams boiling over till the very end. Chiefs star quarterback Patrick Mahomes, scrambling for field position on an injured ankle in the final seconds, took a late hit out of bounds by the Bengals. Flags fly with the penalty, putting the Chiefs in range for Harrison Butker's game-winning field goal. Kansas City heads to the Super Bowl for the third time in four years and threw a little shade at the Bengals during the post-game celebrations. Arrowhead, my Woo! It's Mahomes' house. I don't think we have any cigars, but we'll be ready to go at the Super Bowl. Representing the NFC, it's a Philly thing, a phrase coined by star quarterback Jalen Hurts. The Eagles annihilating the 49ers, who were riding a 12-game win streak San Francisco's third-string quarterback and rookie sensation Brock Purdy getting injured early. Then fourth-stringer Josh Johnson leaving with injury, too. They didn't stand a chance. Second-year Philadelphia head coach Nick Sirianni was effusive in his praise of his team's dominating performance. This is something we all dream about, and we get to do it because, you know, we did it better than anybody else in the NFC this year. So uh, that, it's pretty special. Fans were awesome. Atmosphere was unbelievable. Meanwhile, Jalen Hurts has gone from being benched at Alabama in the 2018 College Football National Championship game to transferring to Oklahoma. He says he uses the pain to strengthen him. He's now a pro bowler in his third NFL season, leading his team to the Super Bowl. I know I've been through a lot personally, but I want, I want to steer it from the direction of how, how good this team has been to plan together to have this opportunity in front of us. You know, we want to take advantage of it. The atmosphere tonight was amazing. The fans showed up, the energy, all of it. So we need to bring that to AZ. Don, the Eagles last won the Super Bowl five years ago. The Chiefs just three. Now they're going to go toe-to-toe, and you will have Rihanna doing the halftime show. Chris Stapleton will be singing the national anthem. We're going to be there for you all week, bringing all the sights and sound of Super Bowl week. Uh, but who do you cheer for if you're mom and dad for the Kelsey brothers? I mean, When you said brothers, I was like, wait, is he talking about Jalen and, and the whole <laughs> no, brothers. Brothers. Actual brothers? The other brothers. Actual brothers versus Brothers. brothers. That's right. <laughs> Can I say how much I love Jalen Hurts, though? Like, yeah. for him to have this moment, and he was so selfless. He was on stage last night. He said, this is not about me. This is about this city. And it yeah. was it was mm. such a lovely moment, Corey. I yeah, was and he, you nervous, know, being from. Oh, sorry. Go on. Go on. Go on. I was going to say, you know, Kaylin, being from Alabama, she knows how selfless he is. I mean, he essentially lost his starting job to Tua Tungavaloa, Alabama. He transfers to Oklahoma. He's always been a team first person, yeah. an incredible leader, someone we can all really learn from. Yep. As a former resident of Philadelphia, I was a little bit nervous because, you know, when the Sixers have won yes, and lost, it yes. gets, you know, and the Eagles, you know, batteries. <laughs> Who do you want? Are you a Eagles now? Um, I, no, want for, I want them for Jake. Okay. Patrick Mahomes. I'm a Mahomie. Jalen Hurts, obviously. <laughs> <Yeah. All right>. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Coy.
Appreciate you got it. it. All, right. All right, Quay, thank you very much. Let's turn now to Memphis, where change is already happening after the savage and deadly police beating of Tyree Nichols. America has now seen the video. We have heard Tyree crying out for his mother as those officers pummeled him and kicked him in the head. And now the Memphis Police Department is permanently shutting down its Scorpion Street Crime Unit. The five police officers charged with murdering Tyree Nichols were all members of that unit. It was designed and created just a few years ago to crack down on high crime neighborhoods. Those are growing calls for police reform, not just in Memphis, but true nationwide federal changes. Sarah Seidner has been in Memphis. You were there with Don throughout this covering it. You've been covering this from the start. Um, Not only uh, is that unit disbanded and questions, obviously, about how uh, those, like, the whole picture of that, but also uh, Memphis police coming under scrutiny for how they put out that initial statement of what happened on January 7th versus what they said this weekend. That's right. And that Scorpion unit is the Street Crimes Operation to Restore Peace in Our Neighborhoods unit. Uh, and it was created actually by the chief who now has disbanded it. Right. It's only been around a year and change. Um, and it was because crime was rising and they wanted to do something holistic. But when you look at the report that the public got initially, uh, it was very different than what we all saw uh, on video. Very. And we have seen this time and time and time again. These cameras are starting to, these cameras are capturing the truth. And we're not getting the truth often when you see those initial reports. Police body camera and surveillance video are bringing into question the initial statement made by the Memphis Police Department regarding the brutal arrest and death of Tyree Nichols. The initial statement writes that officers attempted to make a traffic stop for reckless driving. Further writing, as officers approached the driver of the vehicle, a confrontation occurred. As seen in the police body camera video, Nichols was actually pulled out of the car and thrown to the ground, tased and beaten. The Memphis Police Department statement said that Nichols fled the scene on foot and officers pursued the suspect and again attempted to take the suspect into custody while attempting to take the suspect into custody, another confrontation occurred. That second confrontation includes officers spraying him with pepper spray and punching and kicking him repeatedly. I have more and more doubts that there was any issue of reckless driving whatsoever. I think it was a narrative. I think it was a justification for the stop, just as they pleaded on some of the video that you saw in the second encounter that they were saying, did you see him reach for my gun? That never happened. Those are all excuses. Those are all lame defenses and and just a, a reason for what they did, which is now we know has no basis at all. According to the Memphis police, the suspect complained of having shortness of breath, at which time an ambulance was called. The video shows Nichols propped up against a police car, clearly in distrust, while the officers stand around chatting with each other. Medics arrive, but it is not until 25 minutes after Nichols is subdued that an ambulance arrives on the scene. 
This is certainly not the first time that videos and evidence contradict initial police accounts that favor the officers involved. In the case of George Floyd, the Minneapolis police said Floyd appeared to be suffering medical distress, when in reality, video evidence showed Officer Derek Chauvin kneeling on Floyd's neck. In the case of Breonna Taylor, the initial statement from Louisville police said she had no injuries, even though six shots struck her when police entered her home using a battering ram to execute a search warrant. The report also says there was no forced entry. So you see that time and again, and it makes you, and these are the big cases that the nation has learned about. The problem is you see those inconsistencies and you wonder about all the other times when there have been, there have been cases that perhaps got some attention uh, or those that got no attention. What was the truth? It has always been assumed on the public's part that the police were telling the truth. And now we have proof that they haven't been initially in some of their statements. Well, look at when we were covering George Floyd. That's right. If you look at the initial statement, yeah. and you, yeah. you would say, wait, are we talking about... The same thing. The same thing? Yeah. We, and, and, it, and we weren't. And we weren't. Um, and and what thing. that speaks to a little bit is um, something that I think attorneys would say would be consciousness of guilt. If you're putting... If the officers themselves are giving this information... And it is so different from what actually happened. You have to wonder if they're trying to suppress the true information, knowing that something was wrong. But and Sarah, that's even be in, the, in the beginning, when we when we were watching the videotape, yeah. you listened to the officers at the scene yeah. on the scene there. Yeah. They were sort of making it up as they go along. Hey, man, did you see when he did this or he yes. did this and he tried to? They were coming up with a scenario as a, pre that they as a potential pretext. To put it in their report, right, Poppy? Yeah, to put it and in their I think part of it wasn't just the report. Sometimes when you, know, you get a whole bunch of people together, they start making excuses yeah. for why they are treating a human being like this. Dehumanizing seemed to have happened. If you listen to the audio on that, it was blaming him for every single thing that happened. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it's disturbing. I don't think it'll ever leave anybody's mind, anyone who's watch that video. No, it definitely won't, Sarah. Great reporting. Thank you for that. Also coming up this morning, Alex Murdoch sobbing and breaking down the night that his wife and son were murdered. We'll tell you what he told investigators that actually made them suspicious. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Week two of the Alec Murdoch double murder trial is underway. Gets started again today in just a few hours on Friday. Murdoch appeared to be overcome with emotion while listening to an interview that he gave police on the night that his wife and son were murdered. The video has never see, been seen before by the public. Listen to this. This is Murdoch describing the crime scene that night. I knew it was really bad. My, my boy over there, I could see... It was <laughs> and I could see his brain on <laughs> Have y'all been having any problems out here? Trespassers. What comes to my mind is my son Paul was in a boat wreck. Uh, a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of negative publicity about that and there's been a lot of people online just really vile stuff. Joining us now is criminal defense attorney, also formerly a prosecutor, Mark O'Mara. Mark, it's great to have you. Good morning. 
Good morning. The boat wreck he's talking about is where his son, Paul, allegedly drove that boat drunk and, and ki- in that cra- and crashed it and killed was a 19-year-old friend of his, uh, Mallory Beach. C- can you explain why prosecution would present this video and as a defense attorney, what you make of it? Well, you know, I would be concerned if I looked at that as my client. It just comes across to me as a bit pretense. He does break down, although you don't see any tears, not to suggest people can grieve their own way. But all of a sudden, what I noticed was he breaks down talking about his son and then immediately is very rational. He's very explanatory. Well, Mm. here's an idea. Here's the way it might be. And there's a number of things that are concerning to me. So what would you do if you're his lead defense counsel, Descartes-Putlin, what, what do you do? Well, his lawyer was in the car with him. I'm not sure that I would have allowed that video to happen, but that's too late. So huh. now all you can do is say, look, people grieve the way they grieve. He was trying to, he did everything he could. He gave a statement, didn't have to. And he tried to give up any explanation he could in response to the officer's questions and try and minimize what most people will think was a more appropriate reaction to a man just having witnessed the murder of his son and his wife, which would seem to devastate people much more than he seemed to be. I wonder if you were struck by something that that I was struck by, which is that, that, again, lead defense counsel Harputlian basically got the sheriff's deputies on the stand at the end of last week to admit that the crime scene may have been inadvertently tampered with by driving over certain tracks, by not sort of fencing them off right away with crime scene tape. Listen to this exchange with one of them on the stand. So if somebody had come in and left, who had committed the murders, whatever tire tracks that were left were obliterated by your men. Is that right? It's possible. It's possible, and when you're talking about murder, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. Was that a successful line of questioning? I think it was very successful, and it is fairly standard. You you know, Poppy, there is no perfect crime scene. I could rip apart whatever any officer does. So the idea of doing just that, you didn't wear booties, you you drove over, you didn't put a drone up in the sky immediately, you didn't canvas the whole neighborhood within the first five minutes, all of that can be seen to be reasonable doubt. Um, But the real question is whether or not a jury has this feel that the defense is almost trying too hard. Yet to be seen, we have a long way to go. But yes, Harpulian's doing a good job of showing it is not perfect. A really significant week ahead, Mark O'Mara. Thank you. Great to be here. Great seeing you again. Don. Tensions boiling over in the Mideast after a deadly shooting at a synagogue in Jerusalem. We're going to take you there live. Plus, new arrests have been made in the plot to kill journalist and critic of the Iranian government, Masi Alinejad. She's going to join us here live on set next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The White House there as Secretary of State Antony Blinken is going to arrive in Tel Aviv this morning as deadly violence is soaring in the Middle East at a West Bank refugee camp Wednesday where nine Palestinians were fatally shot and at a Jerusalem synagogue where seven Israelis were killed on Friday. Moments ago, Secretary Blinken had this message amid the spike in violence that has put the whole region on edge. There is no question that this is a very difficult moment. Um, as you've heard uh, very clearly 
the condemnation from the United States of the, uh, of the terrorist attacks, the President, the Vice President, myself. Uh, and we deplore overall the loss of innocent civilian life. CNN's Nick Robertson, meanwhile, is live in Jerusalem. Nick, obviously, this is a, a big trip for Blinken coming at a really sensitive time in the area. Yeah, and there's a real hope that he might be able to tamp down the tensions, but there are underlying political issues that have put these put the Israelis and the Palestinians in this position, and it's not clear that he'll be able to really be able to address that. The past year has been one of the deadliest for Palestinians and Israelis for more than a decade. The past uh, the past month, the deadliest uh, uh, the deadliest for for a long time. More than 30 Palestinians and Israelis killed. It will be a very challenging time for the secretary here. In recent days, bloodshed and killings of both Israelis and Palestinians spiking. Tensions between the two rising. What we see right now in terms of, of, of uh, confrontation, of escalation, will look like kids play compared with what could happen next. We don't know if this is the beginning of a cycle. And in this part of the world, cycles begin and end without you knowing it. A familiar cycle and a problem for US Secretary of State Antony Blinken arriving during his Mideast trip this week. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his far-right coalition have already responded to the Palestinian violence. Having the home of a Palestinian gunman who murdered seven Israelis Friday sealed, also with collective punishment, threatening to revoke residency rights of attackers' families and strengthening settlements, itself already a condition of Netanyahu's far-right political partners. Blinken's message to Netanyahu, who also faces strong Israeli opposition to many of his coalition policies, will be to de-escalate tensions with the Palestinians. Whatever he gets as a promise from Netanyahu, I don't know if Netanyahu will be able to deliver domestically. Why not? Because his government isn't interested in it. They're not interested in calming things down. They were elected on a platform of, we will have an iron fist, a strong response to violence, to terrorism. By the time Secretary Blinken gets here to the West Bank, he'll have had several meetings with Israeli leaders. His likely message for Palestinian officials will be restart security cooperation with Israel, suspended during the recent spike in violence. After years of feeling neglected by the White House, hopes here of de-escalation are at a low ebb. The Palestinian Authority losing control of the streets. This security coordination is both humiliating and ineffective. You can't, you know, the, the PA right now uh, is losing, not just losing control, but losing face. If you have the issue of containment only going to produce a backlash, then that plays into the hands of, of Netanyahu's government. Absolutely. I think the message will be help. It's going to be an SOS. This ship is sinking. Expectations on all sides low. The need for help high. And what could that help look like uh, for both sides? It comes in the form of international pressure and nobody better than the Secretary of State to be delivering that. At home, 
president, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu does have that uh, strong opposition on the streets, but his, his coalition is still strong. It is still powerful. So uh, whatever he uh, hears from Secretary Blinken, um, he is on, you know, he's going to be in a very firm position, firm footing at home politically. Yeah, we'll see what that message looks like when Blinken actually arrives there. Mm. Nick, thank you so much for that report. So let's talk about this very disturbing story now. The Justice Department announcing new arrests in what they say is a plot directed by Iran to kill journalist Masa Alinejad in New York. And the indictment says that the three men are members of an Eastern European criminal organization with ties to Iran. One of the men had been arrested over the summer in a Brooklyn neighborhood where Alinejad lives. Police found a loaded assault rifle in the backseat of his car. The suspect allegedly plotted to lure Linajad out of her home and then kill her. The charges were announced at a press conference on Friday where the Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco said this. This case began with our investigation of Iran's efforts to project power and to extend its tentacles of oppression to American shores through the targeting of an Iranian-American journalist who has stood up to the brutal regime, shining a light on Iran's abuse of human rights and women's rights. The charges unsealed today show how organized crime in pursuit of profits and operating from a rogue nation can pose a grave threat to our national security and to the freedoms we hold dear. You can see her right here. There's Masi Alinejad, the target of that alleged plot, journalist and activist. Good morning. I'm alive. First, that's what I was going to ask you. How are you doing? Um, not easy, but I'm doing well because the reason that they came after me, it's I'm very hopeful, full of energy. I'm not going to give up. You found out on Friday just before this press conference, right? Yeah, I was on my way to go to Washington, D.C. I had some meetings and I got a phone call from FBI. They stopped me from traveling there. And then uh, they invited me to the FBI headquarters in New York. Twelve um, agents, the leadership, they were there. And they gave me the details of uh, the assassination plot. Imagine you go there and they give you all the details of how three men were planning to kill you. I felt like, wow, I have been given a second life. Mm. I could have been killed. I cannot even believe that I'm, I'm using this word. I could have been killed yes. if I had opened the door in Brooklyn. And I don't mean to disagree, but you've been given a second or even yeah. third, like because this is not the right, first right. or second true. time. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah. And reading through that indictment, I mean, one man with an AK-47 outside of your home, another saying, this is going to happen today, this will be over today, and it will be a birthday present for me. And yet what I, I think we all are so struck by your courage is because... It, it's an effort to silence you, and yet your voice only becomes louder and more prominent. Definitely. Look, I want to be very honest with you. The details were really scary. But what it scares me that um, this is happening right now in Iran. I mean, these criminals were hired by the Islamic Republic. They were part of uh, uh, criminal organizations from Eastern Europe. So you see, the Islamic Republic itself is a criminal organization and killing innocent uh, protesters inside Iran, killing teenagers every single day. So I'm very thankful to the U.S. government, to the law enforcement that they protect me. But it is scary that it has been 
twice that the Islamic Republic trying to challenge the U.S. authorities on U.S. soil by sending assassins to kill me. Mm. And if nothing happened, they, do, they don't see any punishment, then there is no reason for Iranian government to send more killers on U.S. soil. Well, and you're referencing the, the Thieves in Law group that they're allegedly part of. I looked through the indictment. It, it suggests that there is a connection, right. but it doesn't say explicitly that Iranian officials are behind this assassin- no, it assassination says. plot. It says. I mean, if you listen to the head of the FBI, the, the attorney general, they both said that this is from the Islamic Republic, from the government. Mm-hmm. What did but they, they don't about mention that? about... Sorry, they don't mention about the organization, but we Iranians know the best that this is all coming from Revolutionary Guards. Revolutionary Guards, which is on the terrorist list by the U.S. government, which clearly should be in the terrorist list of all the European countries, are behind all these assassination plots. Look, in 40 years, there are more than 500 people got assassinated or kidnapped on, on, on U.S. soil and European countries. Massey, so many questions. I but know. It sounds like you're speaking directly to the administration right now when you say they're challenging U.S. authority. Were you speaking to Biden right now? I love that because, you know, many people ask me, what do you want to say to the Iranian regime? What do you want to say to the government? My message to the government is clear. I don't want to talk to them. I want to see them on international courts. I want to see them accountable. Who can do this? President Biden. I want to talk to President Biden. I want to meet you in person. I mean, I have been a second life in the United States of America, and I deserve to meet you, to thank the law enforcement and call on you, because they can do a lot. President Biden can announce Iran policy. We cannot see one day they sanction the Iranian clerics, and next day they go and negotiate with the same clerics. I want them to press, to convince the EU to designate the Revolutionary Guards as a terrorist organization. How do you live this way? Not easy. You know, my life is upside down. I have to watch my shoulder. My stepchildren, my husband, my friends and family, they're all worried about my life. But as you hear me, I'm not scared for my life. We can't talk about this in a vacuum. We have to talk about this in the moment that exists right now in Iran. And you have talked a lot about who your heroes are, the women in Iran right now. Right now, look, I I just put it here because I wanted to talk about them. I always use my mobile, like my weapon, to show you the reason that I'm being the target because I'm giving voice to these women. Look, they're being shot in their eyes for demanding freedom, equality, dignity. These are the values that we share in America. America is all about freedom of expression. America is all about, you know, freedom of speech. And that's why I came to the United States of America and I deserve to have, uh, you know, safety and security to give voice to these people. Masi Alinejad, we're so glad you do and we're so glad you came back to CNN this morning. Thank you. Thank you so much for not abandoning Iranian people. Take care of yourself. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Ahead, why a top U.S. Air Force official is predicting war with China in just a few years. Also this, one actress's Oscar nomination now has the Academy reviewing its procedures. Entertainment journalist Sagoon Odulowu is here to discuss. Angels are falling down on me. Good Christian people raised you right. You ruined that sweet boy's life. And what did you do to stop me? So don't walk away, you can count. Tell me I'm good. 
So an interesting controversy coming out of Hollywood. Is it Oscar-worthy, this performance, or reason for an award show scandal? A week after Oscar nominations were announced, Variety is now reporting that the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is, quote, conducting a review of the campaign procedures around this year's nominee. It stems from Andrea Rice Burroughs' unexpected Best Actress nomination for the indie film To Leslie, which tells a story of an alcoholic single mom who struggles to get her life back. Now, Rice Burroughs had big Hollywood names backing her in the film, like Gwyneth Paltrow, Kate Winslet, Jennifer Anderson. It only uh, made about $27,000 at the box office, but Rice Burrow joins the ranks of Kate Blanchett, Michelle Williams, Michelle Yeoh in this best actress category or best leading actress category. So, entertainment journalist Shagun Oduolowu joins us now. Did I get it? You got it. it was part, that, yeah, was yeah. <laughs> that was perfect. That was good. Isaiah, it's early. Okay, so good morning. Good morning. Good to see you. So, here's I the thing. The gang. So, I it has been. Isn't it sort of, you're supposed to campaign the Academy and work your sources and get the nomination? Mm -hmm. So what is different and controversial about this? How is it scandalous? So at first, I don't want to slam Andrea at all. I thought her performance in this movie is fantastic. But this is to slam the Academy. When you are an institution that is shrouded in all of this secrecy, all of the awards that come from it feel tainted. If you throw that, that, that picture up of who was campaigning for her, what does it look like? You don't see people of color. When you look at who is being nominated for a best actress, you, aside from Michelle Yeoh, you do not see people of color. And what I have a problem with is she, played into, she, she did a movie that hardly anyone saw. There are over 10,000 members in the Academy. If all of them went to the movie, maybe, maybe, then the box office would be higher. So a movie that no one saw, right? It's like a tree falling in a forest. And when you start judging art and saying, well, this is better than this, already you are corrupting. This is an athletics where there's a winner and a loser and you're trying to judge art and no one really saw this film. But let's put that aside. She play, it's based on uh, accounts of a true story. Well, so is Woman King. Mm -hmm. Right. So is Danielle Deadwater. Uh, Viola Dela Davis mm -hmm. and Till and, and Till, yeah, so, so who are not nominated. Who are not nominated and with movies people actually saw. So I do. I have a serious problem with the way the Academy conducts its business. Her performance should stand by itself. But yeah, that was campaigning. We we went and looked at what the rules are. Because when we were talking about this last night, I was like, but what are the rules? Mm -hmm. So the lobbying rule is that you cannot Contacting Academy members directly and in a manner outside the scope of these rules to promote a film is expressly forbidden. Rule number 10. Uh, right. Rule number 10. The Washington Post asked a lot of those big actors who nominated her why. Kate Winslet, for example, said, when I saw her performance, it floored me. I wanted to support her. This is going to be tricky to prove. Yeah, listen, I'm not going to call these actresses and actors liars, but... Edward Norton, Oscar nominated numerous times. Charlize Theron, Oscar nominated and a winner. Kate Winslet, numerous Oscar nominations and a winner. You remove Jennifer Aniston and everyone that was in that picture has either been nominated for an Oscar or has won one. And all of a sudden they just, they just spontaneously decided to speak on Andrea's behalf. Again, this is the Academy. This is why the Academy loves nothing more than us talking about it because we talk about the controversies more than we talk about the actual show, right? If you think about the last couple of Oscars, it's more been about the controversy than it has been who actually won. Shikun, I don't feel like you answered the question, though. Okay. 
is not out of the ordinary for people to campaign. It's not out of the ordinary for indie films, for independent films, for films that don't get a lot of attention, that a lot of people, to, for people to campaign and for them to be nominated or even win. So the, the question is, is she actually doing something wrong? Or are people just not happy that they feel that bigger actresses or minority actresses should have been nominated? Do you understand my yeah, point? No, I got you, but they don't campaign like this. Okay. They don't campaign like this, right? You might have the studio say, for your consideration. In Los Angeles, you will see billboards all over town that say, for your consideration, please consider X amount movie, X actress, et cetera. Okay. But you do not see an Oscar-winning actress do a Q&A with the, with the actress to give her a bigger push. You don't see Oscar-winning actresses go on the record and say she should be nominated. It's one thing to campaign and everyone do a wink-wink and a nod-nod. This was so uh, this was so um, this was so obvious that it it, it offends is, is 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 my only point. All right. And again, if there wouldn't if there's a rule for it, let there be a rule for it. Shigun, thank you so much. I mean, we'll wait to see uh, what this all happens and what it looks like. But there, there's I am going to watch it now. I didn't even if know you about can it. find it. If you can find it. If yeah. you can find it in the theater, it I, I nothing. It yeah. Yeah. yeah you know. All right, Shigun, thank you so much. All right, up next, we're going to talk about what does it take to board the first rocket headed to the moon in more than 50 years? We have a CNN exclusive on the secretive process of picking the astronauts for NASA's next historic mission. And beyond. We'd like to dedicate the first steps of Apollo 17 to all those who made it possible. That was the last time that Americans were on the moon. This morning, the next big question is who is going to be the next ones? NASA is gearing up to announce the four-person crew it's going to send to the moon for the first time in 50 years. CNN has an exclusive inside look at the secret selection process. We were even able to whittle down a list of possible candidates who may be going. CNN's Kristen Fisher joins us now. Kristen, I know I'm not on this list, but tell us, why is this such a such a secretive process? You know, How do they actually make these decisions, and when do we actually find out who, who it is? It's so secretive, Caitlin, because there's no good way to do it. There's no truly objective, transparent, and equitable way to do it when you're dealing with 41 active astronauts who have already become the best of the best. They've already beaten out thousands of other applicants. Most of them have already uh, flown in space. These are people at the prime of their careers, the top of their game, and they're all competing for just six seats on the Artemis II and Artemis III crew. Now, Artemis II, we believe that crew is going to be announced sometime this spring. And, you know, one of the big decisions for a program this important, a program that, uh, you know, has so many close ties to Washington and abroad, is how much is Washington's leadership, NASA's leadership, going to have in this process? And NASA Administrator Bill Nelson told CNN that, quote, we stay out of the selection of the crew. That is done by the people at JSC, the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. They will make the decision. I do not know if they've decided who the crew is, nor should I. So this decision is going to come down to three key people at the Johnson Space Center. And Caitlin, I interviewed uh, more than a dozen current and former NASA astronauts and officials. And based on their list of 
best guesses and top contenders. Here is who we believe uh, is really sitting and has the best stand a chance, the best chance of uh, getting assigned to that Artemis II crew. Randy Bresnick, Victor Glover, Jeremy Hansen, Christina Koch, Anne McLean, Jessica Meir, Stephanie Wilson, and Reed Weissman. Uh, Reed Weissman, I'll point out to you, Caitlin, because he was the former chief astronaut, stepped down just a, a, a day before that first test flight, Caitlin. And so a lot of people believe he's at the, the top of the list uh, to be assigned to that Artemis II crew. All right, we'll see if he makes the list. Kristen Fisher, thank you so much for that reporting. You bet. All right, in just moments here on set, Shimon Procupes, who's been reporting in Memphis, is going to break down the biggest questions he still has and the ones that remain after the Tyree Nichols police beating. And straight ahead here on CNN This Morning, we're going to be joined by the former police captain and current New York City mayor, that is Eric Adams, why he says he feels betrayed by those officers' actions. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. By failing to craft and pass bills to stop police brutality, the blood of black America is on your hand. So stand up and do something. Good morning, everyone. We're still covering the fallout uh, from what happened in Memphis days later, and it's going to go on. And part and of that is increased pressure on Washington, what she was just saying there. And there should be, right? Mm -hmm. Washington needs to act. That, that That's what they have been saying there. That's what people have been calling for. Thank you for joining us. So has this happened before? The Memphis Police Department's Scorpion Street Crime Unit coming under new and intense scrutiny after the savage and deadly beating of Tyree Nichols. There are growing calls for police reform across the nation, including right here in New York City. We're going to speak to the mayor and retired police captain Eric Adams. Plus this. That is violence, serious violence, escalating between Israel and Palestinians and a mysterious drone strike against Iran, stoking tension in the region as America's top diplomat heads to Jerusalem right in the thick of it, the Biden administration facing a major test as this situation continues. Also this morning, a bombastic warning from a top U.S. general who is predicting war with China, potentially. We're going to start, though, with the Memphis Police Department permanently shutting down its Scorpion unit after the savage and deadly beating of Tyree Nichols. The special unit was once celebrated for cracking down on high crime areas, but it is now coming under intense scrutiny. So the big question is, was Tyree Nichols the only one or did other people also suffer brutal treatment at the hands of this Scorpion unit? I'm so glad we have Shimon Prokopez on top of this. And Shimon, I really hope you get to the bottom of this. Thank you for joining us. Good yep. to see you in New York. We were in Memphis. And you're going to stay on top of this. So it has uh, a very, I under, as I understand you, correct me if I'm wrong, sketchy track record, the Scorpion. Well, we're hearing that certainly from people in the community. I mean, you were there. You know, people would come up to us wanting to talk to us about this Scorpion unit. Of course, the Scorpion unit. And, you know, we should remind people the name that you know this name is even getting uh, so much uh, scrutiny people are like why would you use a name like scorpion well what it stands for is street crimes operation to restore peace in our neighborhood and the mayor is, was touting this, you know, as this crime-fighting tool. Uh, they saw a large number of arrests in just two months in, uh, from the time it was created into January. November 2021 is when it was created. And they saw nearly 566 arrests. That's yeah. a lot of 
arrests. It was created because there was a high crime rate and they wanted to tamp down on it, especially coming out of COVID and the lockdown and all of that. A lot of cities saw rises in crime and they wanted to tamp down. So they started the Scorpion unit in 2021. Right. Gang problems. Right. The one thing that I keep hearing from people in Memphis is auto theft is a big thing. They're break-ins, burglaries. And so that's what this unit was created to do, to try and, you know, so that people can feel safe and, and live safely. But obviously their aggressive tactics are now coming into focus. Let's move forward in the investigation now. More charges coming for these officers? So and maybe some others? Some others, perhaps. The DA's office, the district attorney there has not said that he has not ruled that out. He said that is a possibility. And then when you look at the video, because so many of the officers are just standing around, since George Floyd, in the aftermath of that, one of the things that Memphis did and the police department did was that there is a duty to intervene. Mm -hmm. And because of that, there are perhaps other officers, when you see them standing around not intervening, that there's a chance that other officers could face. Charges. How are they dealing with this around the country? How is it affecting police reform? So, well, a lot of people who want to see more reform feel that this is a blueprint, a blueprint in the sense of that the way the police chief handled this in the immediate aftermath within a week or so, two weeks, firing these officers, the district attorney moving so quickly to bring charges and then the release of the video. But they want to use this as the blueprint in disciplining officers and getting rid of bad officers quicker. Because, look, a lot of police departments have issues because of unions and municipalities and laws and rules that prevent the firing of officers so quickly. But now they want to use this as a potentially a catalyst for change. Yeah. I'm so glad you're staying on top of this. Thank Thanks, you. Dad. Shimon Perkopez, appreciate it. And straight ahead here on CNN This Morning, perfect person to discuss all of this. We're going to talk to former police captain and the current mayor of New York City, Eric Adams. Caitlin? Also, Tyree Nichols' parents are going to be in Washington next week when President Biden delivers his State of the Union address after they were invited by the head of the Congressional Black Caucus. Chairman Stephen Horsford says that he reached out to the family to let them know that they stand with them and to, quote, honor the legacy of their son. He's also hoping that the president will address police accountability and criminal justice in his remarks now. I'm told that their president, presence almost certainly means he will have to do so. The influential Congressional Black Caucus is also calling for a meeting with President Biden to push for police reform negotiations. Well, some legal experts are now asking if the second-degree murder charges against those officers who beat Tyree Nichols will meet the bar for a successful prosecution after officials released the video of his beating. CNN host Michael Smirconish, who is also an attorney, tweeted this, quote, gut reaction. It was hard to watch. Tragic, sad, unnecessary, excessive. Yes, but deserving of second-degree murder, knowing the killing of another, based only on what I've just seen, no. Smirkanish defended his position on his show this weekend. Watch. If my thumbs failed me, it's that I didn't make a clear legal distinction that I was seeking. What I was saying is this. I wasn't saying that they hadn't killed Tyree Nichols. Sadly, they did. I was trying to say their actions seen on tape might not fit the legal standard for second-degree murder. So let's talk about all of this with assistant professor of law at Brooklyn Law School, uh, Alexis Hogue Fodjur. How do I do? Yeah, Fodjur. Fodjur. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> it's great to have you. Likewise. I, so what, what Smirkanish is arguing here is that to meet successfully prosecute on second-degree murder, you need knowing intent. You need intent. Exactly. You make a really interesting point that a first-degree murder but felony murder charge may have held up better. Why? 
Well, so for first degree felony murder, it means that a murder happened in conjunction with an underlying felony. And here, every single charge that the Memphis District Attorney um, charged these five individuals with were felonies. And the, uh, the underlying felony that would support a first degree murder charge, felony murder, is kidnapping. Well, and the kidnapping charge stood out to me because that seems kind of unusual that they would, would yeah. do that. What is your sense of, it's aggravated kidnapping. What is your sense of that charge? Exactly. And it's actually two counts of aggravated kidnapping. So one, can't, one count had to do with the fact that uh, a weapon was involved, a deadly weapon, which is a baton. And the other count had to do with the fact that there was serious bodily injury endured uh, by Mr. Nichols. Um, and so what, what is unusual about a kidnapping charge in a confrontation with law enforcement officials is we obviously deputize law enforcement officials to make seizures, to make arrests. But at this point, their uh, initially uh, what would have been legitimate behavior crossed the line into illegitimacy during that uh, just initial traffic stop, which, again, the Memphis police uh, chief, C.J. Davis said there's no evidence that that was a lawful stop even to begin with. Yeah. Uh, just even the attorneys for the police officers, they believe, at least the, the, the two that I've spoken to, they believe that it's overcharged and that it's going to be hard to prove because you have to knowingly, um, you have to know that you are, your actions are going to kill someone. And they don't believe that the officers knew that. Yeah, so it's difficult. So every, every criminal charge, there's going to be some sort of gray area. This is an adversarial system that we have. Um, and those are exactly the kind of statements that I would want to hear from a defense counsel in this situation. But in terms of second-degree murder, here under Tennessee law, which is where I was originally licensed to practice, mm -hmm. was that it takes um, an awareness right. that there is a... Um, uh, sort of uh, just likelihood, right, that, uh, that you'd be reasonably certain that your conduct would result in somebody's death. And so here there are facts that would have communicated to the officers that they should have known that what they were doing would have resulted in Mr. Nichols' death. His arms were pinned mm -hmm. and they were striking him repeatedly mm -hmm. in the head with their boots and with a baton. Those are both deadly weapons. Mm -hmm. And this idea that um, they had to have knowledge, that's, that's what we require. So ev every criminal act requires an actus reus and a mens reus. And those are uh, Latin terms, basically a, a guilty act and a guilty mind. Blake uh, Ballin, is that one of the attorneys? Blake yes. Ballin. Okay, yeah. so uh, you'll know this better than I because you were there talking to him, but I did think it was interesting that in this statement he talked about his client, Desmond Mills, who basically says he arrived to the scene later and he yeah, says we're, yeah, we're confident and, and, and it had, according to the lawyer, pepper spray in his eyes from someone. Um, from, from his own colleagues. One of the, right, mm -hmm. from one of the other officers. Um, he says that we are confident the questions of whether Desmond crossed the lines that are crossed and whether he committed the crimes charged will be answered with a resounding no. There is this question of, you've got five officers charged mm -hmm. with the same thing, but... Exactly. So, so Steve Mulroy, yeah. right, the brand new district attorney general of Shelby County, he was brought in, just he was elected last fall under a platform of criminal justice reform. So what's um, interesting and perhaps unusual about the charges here is that all five officers are alleged to be equally culpable. All five officers received the identical seven charges, all felony counts. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens as this case moves forward. If it does go to trial, if defense counsel strategy for each of the officers is to separate these cases. If it does go to trial. Exactly. If. I think you're asking, you, he's, you're saying. If it does go to trial. Exactly. 
So the, the, the reality, and this is what I tell my students in criminal procedure adjudication, we talk about trials, but the reality is over 95% of cases settle. in the state uh, system settle an even higher percent in the federal context, and there will be uh, concurrent, uh, or rather consecutive, one after the other, um, federal charges brought here. Interesting. Fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. So especially since you practiced there as, yes, as well. Yes, about a decade. Thank you very, <laughs> very, very much, Alexis. So police in New Jersey are searching for a man who allegedly threw a Molotov cocktail at this Jewish synagogue in Bloomfield on Sunday. The glass bottle broke, but no damage was reported. The temple also houses a preschool and K through 12 religious school. Police provided this image of the suspect with his face covered. There it is right there. Nearby police say they will increase patrols of area temples. Minutes from now, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is going to arrive in Tel Aviv, part of his several-day visit to the Middle East. Of course, his trip is coming uh, with new urgency after this wave of deadly violence that we've seen happen in recent days between Israelis and Palestinians in the West Bank. Blinken is going to be meeting with the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, who is back in office in Jerusalem later today at a time when the United States has concerns over the new conservative government that is now in power. It includes these ultra-nationalist and ultra-religious parties. Earlier today, Blinken was in Cairo meeting with the Egyptian president and the foreign minister there. He was talking about all of this. And we should put this in context because all of this is coming as we are also learning in recent days about a U.S. Air Force general who is predicting that the U.S. and China will go to war in 2025. The Washington Post is reporting that General Michael Minihan sent a memo to troops under his command that said, quote, I hope I'm wrong. My gut tells me we will fight in 2025. Taiwan's presidential elections are in 2024. They're going to offer sheer reason, he believes. United States presidential elections are obviously also in 2024 and will offer she a distracted America. He says she's team an opportunity are all aligned for 2025. Now, of course, this is what he is saying. Now, this is not necessarily the reflection of the consensus of the U.S. military. Republican Congressman Mike McCall did tell Fox yesterday he agrees with the general's assessment. I hope he's wrong as well. I think he's right, though. We have to be prepared for this. Um, and it could happen, I think, as long as Biden is in office <clears throat> projecting weakness as he did with Afghanistan that led to Putin invading uh, in Ukraine, uh, that the odds are very high we could see a conflict uh, with China and Taiwan and the Indo-Pacific. Joining us now is CNN's chief national security correspondent and anchor Jim Shudo. Jim, I know you have been talking to sources about this. You've been speaking to military officials. What was their reaction? Because this memo is pretty bombastic and blunt in what his view of what could happen is. Well, there's a difference between a gut sense and an official assessment uh, of U.S. intelligence, uh, the Department of Defense. Uh, a senior U.S. defense official said to me in the wake of these comments definitively that these comments are not representative of the department's view on China. Now, to be clear, the department, uh, members of Congress of both parties are concerned about the possibility of conflict with China in the coming years. Uh, but, but there is no hard data, hard intelligence to predict that a war is going to happen in two years. I, I do want to give you a, a read of from the U.S. Uh, Department of Defense spokesperson, Patrick Ryder, uh, and he notes that this is in the national defense strategy. He says the national defense strategy makes clear that China is the pacing challenge for the Department of Defense, and our focus remains on working alongside allies and partners to preserve a peaceful, free, and open Indo-Pacific. What does that all mean? It means that 
The U.S. has identified China, even with Russia in Ukraine, as the primary national security threat to the U.S. They see potential flashpoints, particularly in Taiwan. They know that there is a risk of war over Taiwan, but it is not the U.S. Uh, assessment that war with China over Taiwan or any other issue is going to happen in two years. And frankly, I've spoken to, to folks both currently in the U.S. military and, and very recently mm -hmm. in the U.S. military, and they say that it's not the position of the commander of U.S. Mo mobility, Air Mobility Command, uh, to make such a public prediction, uh, given that, of course, China would be watching such comments very closely as well. Jim, you know this uh, region better than anyone. I'm I wonder, though, if you think you you say the word publicly, Pub, there's publicly and then there's privately what they believe yeah. and what they prepare for. The Wall Street Journal editorial board this morning writing the headline is telling the truth about possible war over Taiwan. And they say that these concerns should be broadly shared. And they quote a Navy admiral back in 2021 who testified before Congress that he thought that uh, China could strike Taiwan before 2027. Admiral Davidson's comments, I mean, yeah. they, they sparked a similar reaction at, at the time. And, and again, there's a difference between publicly speaking about mm -hmm. how real the threat is. And, and by the way, I speak, I speak to, to folks on China and the U.S. Defense Department, National Security Council frequently on this topic. They treat it as a very real threat. But they are not saying that the U.S. will go to war with China in two years. And, and that is what a sitting U.S. Air Force general said, and frankly, that's that's different. And 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 the assessments, by the way, there, there are private assessments, there are classified assessments, but but there's there are very public comments about the risk of that war. But a prediction of a war uh, in two years is a, is a different thing. It, it's a very different thing. And of course, uh, folks sitting in positions of power now mm -hmm. on this side concerned that China would read those comments and say, wait a second. You know, we got to be prepared for war in yeah. two years as well. So, so part part of avoiding escalation, right, is is uh, is not making alarmist comments in yeah. public at that level, especially in a memo like like, like yeah. this one was. Jim, thanks. Your reporting on this is so helpful. Thanks. Appreciate it very much. Former President Donald Trump is taking aim at two of his biggest potential competitors in 2024. Pollster Frank Luntz with us live. And House Democrats whose committee assignments are being targeted by Speaker McCarthy sat down with our very own Dana Bash. She's going to join us to discuss that's next. More CNN this morning to come after the break. This is some Bakersfield BS. It's, it's Kevin McCarthy weaponizing his ability to commit this political abuse because he perceives me, just like Mr. Schiff and Ms. Omar, as an effective political opponent. That's Congressman Eric Swalwell as House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's bid to strip a committee assignment from Congresswoman, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar might be in peril this morning. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal says she does expect more than five Republicans to vote against kicking Omar off the Foreign Affairs Committee, which would effectively block McCarthy from booting a third Democrat from a House committee, given he needs a majority to do so. Representatives Omar, Eric Swalwell and Adam Schiff each responded to the new House Speaker's efforts on State of the Union with Dana Bash yesterday. And now Dana Bash joins us. Dana, I mean, Kevin McCarthy is coming dangerously close to falling short of the votes he needs when it comes to kicking Ilhan Omar off this committee specifically. That's right. And we should note, and I think you sort of alluded to this, that when it comes to the Intelligence Committee, Eric Swalwell and Adam Schiff, they're off because the Republican majority, any majority, can do it on that committee without a House vote. For foreign affairs and other committees, it is different. You need a House <clears throat> vote. And we expect that to be this week. 
One of the biggest arguments, maybe the biggest argument against Omar uh, for sitting on that committee is uh, they allege that she has a series of a pattern of anti-Semitic and they claim anti-American uh, remarks over the years. She and I went back and forth. I, I put a lot of those to her on the mm-hmm. anti-Semitism guys. She said that she didn't understand that some of the terms that she used were historically uh, anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic tropes, which she apologized for. And she says that this is a learning experience. But when it comes to the process and whether or not she will actually get kicked off this committee, here's what she said. They have taken a position in the last Congress, and they will continue to do that. And I believe that that um, is a really important piece here, because their stance uh, to stand behind two members that were accused of inciting violence and threatening the lives of members of Congress uh, was to say the minority, the, the, the majority should not have uh, the job of removing the minority from their committees. And I hope that they keep their word. Now, in that case, she's obviously talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar. Those are the Republicans who Democrats voted to take off committees and different votes in the last Congress because uh, of comments that they had made in the past. In those cases, uh, guys, Republicans joined with Democrats. In the case of Marjorie Taylor Greene, I believe it was 11 Republicans who joined with them. In this case, what what the new Republican majority is struggling to do is keep their own members in line. So far, we have three Republicans who've said they won't go along with their leadership on this. Uh, And they are Ken Buck uh, of Colorado and also Nancy Mace and Victoria Sparts. It looks like they can maybe only lose one more Republican if that. Uh, Mm -hmm. Otherwise, this effort to remove her could fail. Dana, let's talk about you did this really powerful interview. We started that you started your show yesterday with Ben Crump, the the attorney Mm -hmm. representing Tyree Nichols family. And uh, he said, look, it's finally time. It's finally time for us to see the Justice for George Floyd Act passed. Dick Durbin uh, also called on Congress to to restart police negotiation, police reform negotiations. But Jim Jordan said, I believe it was on Fox yesterday, no law would change what happened. Do you Mm. get the sense in Washington that any sort of meaningful federal reform will come from this? Because that NAACP statement was so powerful, right? It really was. It really was a statement basically saying enough already. Uh, There's no question it's going to restart the talks, uh, which which didn't go anywhere uh, the last time around, last Congress after George Floyd. Uh, We'll see if they can get the uh, get get the votes for it. But the question that um, that I put to, to Mr. Crump was whether or not that's even enough. And the answer is, and I don't need to tell you, especially Don, who was down in Memphis yeah. doing these incredible interviews and reporting, is that there is a, also a cultural uh, issue that this country needs to deal with that is not possible to be legislated here in Washington. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Dan, quickly before we let you go, though, you also had this interview with Governor Sununu, and he had some really interesting comments about potentially running for president in 2024. He said if he thinks if the New Hampshire primary was held today that Ron DeSantis would win. But what did he tell you about his own run potentially happening? That he's considering running. Uh, He said that he, uh, it's the furthest I've ever heard him go uh, in saying that people are talking to him. He is seriously thinking about it. His whole 
uh, approach to this, he says, is that he has a lane potentially that others who are considering it don't. Uh, he considers himself uh, a moderate uh, on social issues, a conservative on fiscal issues. Obviously, he is from and represents as governor the first in the nation primary state, certainly still on the Republican side. And he also makes an argument over and over again about the need for generational change. He's 48 years old. And so he is considering it. And so I think we're starting to see the movement in uh, a lot of these potential 2024 candidates taking it, inching it a little <laughs> bit further forward. Yeah, he was quite critical of Trump's speech in his state Very. as well. Dana Bash, uh, great interviews all around. Thank you so much. Good to see you guys. Speaking of former President Trump, he is continuing to criticize former allies like Governor Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, who worked for him, but now may challenge him in 2024. So Ron would have not been governor if it wasn't for me. Then when I hear he might run, you know, I consider that very disloyal. Talked to her for a little while. But I said, look, you know, go by your heart if you want to run. She's publicly said that I would never run against my president. He was a great president. Joining us now is pollster and communications strategist Frank Luntz to talk about all this. Frank, we saw former President Trump, you know, on the road in New Hampshire, making several of these stops in South Carolina as well. Uh, I don't think it's surprising that he's criticizing DeSantis and Haley. I've been told he doesn't think anyone should run against him in 2024. But what did you make of it? And that's the whole problem. That's that's the challenge that Donald Trump faces is that, that he sees everything from his perspective. The reason why he was successful in 2016 is because he offered to be their voice. He offered to take their concerns to Washington. Now it's just a series of of gripes and revenge, and it's all about him. And the Republican Party has a very difficult but important decision to make. Are they going to be focused on the future or the past? Are they going to be litigating the 2024 election or the 2020 election? And you see this all across the country. And I want to make one important point about politics. Yes, Donald Trump is leading nationwide in every survey, but in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. Ron DeSantis has pulled even or ahead on the states that really matter. This is a, a duplication of what happened in 2008 when Barack Obama was winning all the key states, even though Hillary Clinton was winning the country. In the end, the country does not vote in January and February. Just these key states do. And Trump has already fallen significantly. And he's even behind some of his opponents right now. So, Frank, and listen, I, I feel like, a, you know, we're kind of falling back on 2016 where we just kind of talk about Trump to be talking about Trump because these are hypothetical matchups, right? We don't know. Uh, DeSantis is not in yet. Chris Sununu is not in. Chris, this is not the first time that Chris Sununu has said that Trump can't win. He said in December he's not stopping anybody from, you know, joining the race, any Republican. Chris Christie said the same thing. He doesn't believe that Trump can win. So if we can move forward and talk about something that's going to happen, the actual reality on the ground now. Several polls have showed a drop in President Biden's approval rating ahead of next week's State of the Union address. This is a CNN poll. It shows approval rating is now at 46 percent among registered voters, down from 48 percent in December. There's a new market Kent University law, uh, law School poll shows Biden down by 44 percent, the approval there. What does that data tell you? It tells me that, that Joe Biden is challenged, but it doesn't say that he's going to lose. And I'm not even convinced he's going to run. And you should save this clip because I know what the White House says. I know what the president says, but I also know the age component. And I know that this is not just an election about 2024. 
This is serving in office through 2029, January 20th of 2029. And so he is not strong, but he's not weak. He does have support from his base, but he's lost some support among swing voters. And probably most importantly, the country is a little bit, just a little bit more optimistic now than it was a few months ago. But it's still quite negative, quite pessimistic. They see the violence. They see the chaos at the border. They see uh, inflation getting a little bit better, but still difficult. They see the job market reasonably strong, but still layoffs in the tech sector. And they wonder, where are we going? Who are we? And the point that was made by Dana Bash, we have a cultural component of where we stand as in the country, not just an economic component. And these are all things that President Biden needs to address in the State of the Union address. The classified documents, does it, do they play a role in this polling at all? They only play a role in, they think that they're all guilty. They think Trump is more guilty than Biden. They think Biden's more guilty than, than Mike Pence. Uh, but they just think that, Don, we have a challenge that we are facing right now that the public has simply lost faith and confidence, not just in Washington, not just in their government, but in all the institutions that lead this country and all the people who lead those institutions. And I'm hoping that someone steps up, steps in and says, okay, we hear you, we get it. It's time for a national reset. And it's time for us to, quite frankly, tell the truth to the American people. I'm waiting for a candidate who says, that's my agenda. Not about politics, not about partisanship, not about issues of the day, but you deserve the truth. And I'm gonna tell you the truth about the future. Frank, thank you very much, Frank Lunds. Before we get to the next, Caitlin, you talk to the Biden White House every day. I, Frank, I know he says to save and clip that of him saying he doesn't think Biden's going to run. They're the planning for him that. to announce within the next month. They are, that, I mean, all unless there's an elaborate ruse underway, everyone inside the White House is planning, we should note, based on our reporting for Biden to announce that he is running. And to Ka Caitlin, to your point, he has defied sort of expectations. You know, expectations for everyone, including Democrats who say, oh, he can't do it, whatever. Maybe he's too old or it should be someone else that they should be. He is defied it. And to your reporting, he's going to run. It, I would I would be very shocked if he does not run. I mean, I mean, you, you never say for sure, because it's all based on reporting and what they're planning to do. But this is underway. They are planning for Biden to run for re-election. It would be a major reversal if that changed. And I don't I don't I'm saving I'm, all the clips. Yeah, I'm with you. He's running. I think he's going to run. Thank you. We'll see, Frank. We'll thanks, have you Frank. back. Frank, thank you We're very gonna much. We're going to clip it. Okay. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> thank you very much. Over the weekend, thousands protested the death of Tyree Nichols. This was across the country. In New York, one protester was seen stomping on a police cruiser. Next, we're going to speak with New York City's mayor. Eric Adams is here. What he thinks happened in Memphis, his personal reaction to it, and what is ahead for this country. Also this. See the heart-pounding moments. Police officers rescued a man after he stole their police car and crashed in front of an oncoming train. So protesters taking to the streets over the weekend to decry police brutality after the releases, the release, I should say, of Tyree Nichols' police 
beating video. In New York City's Times Square, three demonstrators were arrested. One of them, you can see right here, jumping on the hood of a police vehicle, breaking the windshield. The city's mayor, Eric Adams, has spoken openly about being beaten by police as a teenager. Adams tweeting about the video of Tyree Nichols as someone who spent decades fighting for police diversity and against police abuse. He said, I feel betrayed. So uh, the mayor, Eric Adams, joins me now. He spent more than 20 years in the NYPD and was a co-founder of an advocacy group that speaks out against police brutality. Mayor, good morning to you. Thank you for appearing. You're the perfect person to talk about these issues. So my first question, how did things go so horribly wrong in Memphis? Uh, I think a number of uh, things went wrong. It was clear that no one was there with a level head and really controlled the situation in the scene. And we know policing is a very high anxiety form of public protection, uh, but those officers lost control and they showed a level of abuse that is a really a betrayal to those who wear the uniform every day and serve the job of public protection. Much has been made about the officers, all of them being black. You've said that diversifying police departments would allow us, and this is a quote, allow us to have the level of policing we all deserve. These five officers, all black, is there an entrenched police culture of aggression towards black people? Well, clearly, we could not ignore the ethnicity of the officers that are involved. That is uh, the uh, pink elephant in the room, and, and people talked about that. And when we want to diversify departments, it's not only African-American. We have increased the number of members from the AAPI community, Spanish-speaking officers, Muslim officers. The role was to ensure that you diversify departments so the officers are coming from the communities that they represented and that grew up in those communities. Those officers, I believe, betrayed that when all of us attempted to diversify departments. But we're going to stay focused. We're going to keep moving forward. Diversity still is the key. Uh, we saw that in here in New York City, and we're going to stay on that road. But we, there was a personal feeling of betrayal when I witnessed that, that video. Okay, well, let me ask you, the Chief C.J. Davis, when in my interview with her, she said that all the officers being black, it takes race off the table. Do you agree with that? Uh, no, no, I don't. Uh, I think that I understand what... Uh, the chief was saying, and I think she uh, really handled this situation in a very professional way. She moved swiftly. She ensured that those officers were removed from the department. She took all the necessary steps. Uh, but I think uh, race is still on the table. Uh, when a culture of policing historically has treated uh, those from different groups differently, uh, even when the individuals are from that same group, that culture can still exist. And we have to zero in on it, being honest about it, and making sure that we properly train police for the realities of the cities that they are policing in. I, I want to talk about the Scorpion unit, which, which was hers under in 2021. She established the Scorpion unit. Uh, Memphis police is now saying they're going to disband that unit tied to the Scorpion unit tied to the beating. Do you think that was the right call? Because that's just one of the units with one of the names. I mean, the, the same, you know, the same officers are still in the police department. The same mentality runs through the police department. Do you think that was the right move? And is that enough? Uh, I would never second guess a person who's on the ground. She's closest to the problem, so she's closer to the solution. Uh, units don't create abuse. 
abusive behavior creates abuse. You can be assigned to uniform patrol if you don't have the right mindset for public protection. And I think the nobility of being a law enforcement officer, uh, then you should not be assigned in the police department. Uh, when I put back in place uh, our anti-gun unit, many people stated that we should not do it, but we were able to remove 7,000 guns off our streets. Uh, that's a 27-year high. And when you look at the number of arrests for those who carry guns, we must have proper training, proper mindset, and the police officers across our country uh, must have uh, the right mindset to do this very difficult and challenging job of public protection. I, I want to follow up on, on what's happening with the NYPD, but let me just get this uh, in. And this is from the family because Tyree Nichols' family had, had asked that the Scorpion unit be disbanded. The attorneys for the family praising the decision to deactivate that unit, saying that they hope other cities take action to get rid of units just like it. Since selected, you have revived a controversial anti-crime NYPD unit that was responsible for the chokehold death of Eric Garner. How do you respond to the Nichols family? Uh, first of all, I understand their feeling and emotion. You know, I remember when the first time I shared with my mom that I was assaulted by police officers, how devastating it was for her. And it was years later, but she understood what it was. And so I understand when uh, those who are the victims of, the, of abusive police behavior respond a certain way. But we have an obligation of using all the tools properly to keep citizens safe. And right here in New York City, we did not reinstate the anti-crime unit. Uh, that was a plainclothes unit in plainclothes uh, vehicles uh, forming what I thought was aggressive policing at the time. When we put it back in place, based on hearing from the public, officers wearing a modified un uniform so they could be properly identified, proper training, and make sure the officers who are assigned were handpicked and understood how to interact with the public and keep your body cameras on. Mm -hmm. It was the body cameras and the camera from the pole that allowed us to get the transparency that we needed so we could properly make the right decisions. So I think it's fair to say that you updated that unit. You think from what you're saying, keeping the body cameras on and so forth, that that is how you are going to reassure New Yorkers that these units are safe? A combination. The body camera footage is crucial. Having the right supervision there that can immediately de-escalate a situation or stop when it gets out of hand and pick the right officers assigned. Just because you are a police officer does not mean uh, that you are capable of doing every aspect of policing. Uh, if you're a doctor, it does not mean you could be a brain surgeon. No, a brain surgeon is a brain surgeon. And so the forms of policing that causes you to go in and deal with a high volume of arrest go after those who carry guns and other dangerous actions, that's a special trained police officer. If they are in a modified uniform, how do you respond? And we have to continue to lift up the standards of policing no matter who wears the uniform. Let's move on and talk about the migrant crisis because you've been speaking out a lot about the, that crisis. You say it is a national crisis. You also said that New York City is full. Uh, is that really true? Is the Biden administration helping you out at all? Well, I think we must do more. And I take my hat off to the New York congressional delegation, including Senator Schumer and Congressman Jeffries. Uh, they were able to pass a bipartisan a bill with over $800 million that is going to be dispersed to those cities that are involved. Uh, we received uh, $8 million from FEMA. Uh, but when you look at the price tag, uh, it's going to continue to go up. But we have to go to the source. The source is real comprehensive 
immigration reform. The Republicans have been hiding, holding on and blocking it for too many years. We must get this resolved. But there's a crisis right now, and that crisis should be coordinated by the national government. We need to expedite the right to work because it's just unfair to cities like El Paso, New York, Chicago, Washington, for us to pick up this, this burden. And then we need one individual who solely is playing a role of a decompression strategy uh, so that the end of the road can't be New York City and other big cities. So we need more help from the national government. We're speaking with our partners in the state to get this real crisis under control. Part of my question was the Biden administration, is the Biden administration helping you out? Are you speaking directly to the Biden administration in your last answer? Uh, yes, we were. Uh, we are speaking directly to the Biden administration. And yes, when it comes down to the coordination, when it comes down to the decompression strategy, when it comes down to making sure we find ways to allow people to work so they don't have to only sit around all day. Uh, yes, I'm speaking directly to the administration. This is a problem that we must have a resolution, both from Congress and immigration, but the administration to deal with the immediate need that, that we have. Uh, two quick questions that uh, New Yorkers are, this is New York-centric, New York-focused. You <laughs> Just before the new year, you created a rat czar position to deal with the city's rodent issues. That is, when I ask people, what should I ask the mayor, New Yorkers, they said, <laughs> Rats. So go. What do you? What does this mean? Are you going to get rid of well, them or reduce well, the know, number of rats? Well, you, I don't know if many people may not know it, but you know I hate rats, and uh, rats are going to hate me. Going to hate me before it's over. Uh, you know, rats are an indicator. Uh, that your city is not clean, it's not healthy. And when I zero in on rats, I'm zeroing in on something that is really a reflection. You start your day, you don't want a rat running across uh, your foot. Uh, you don't want them inside your car. Uh, so there's something that all New Yorkers, if not all Americans, can uh, clearly see a symbol. And so our goal is, number one, to hire rat czar that is going to focus on rats and hate them as much as I do, but also to use new innovation and devices that we are testing right now uh, to go after the problem. Okay. <laughs> can you imagine my title? I'm the rat czar. Okay, so listen. I don't know if you can see this, and I don't know if you've had a chance to read the post this morning, but so many people are complaining. They're, you know, the Eagles, the, New York, we, whatever, we don't like Philadelphia, our teams, bird brains. People were upset because the Empire State <laughs> Building were lit up in, in the Eagles' colors. Mayor, what were you guys thinking? <laughs> no, that listen, that got away from us the way the <laughs> Eagles game got away from us with the Giants. Uh, we should have we should have lit up in real symbolism. Uh, the colors of the giant, we, that blue should have been there. Unfortunately, someone did not get the memo at the Empire State Buildings. Uh, but, you know, we want to see good sportsmanship. The Giants will be back next year, and the Jets will be back. We'll be excited when they rebuild their teams. <laughs> we got it all in from D.C. to what's happening with migrants to... Bird brains. To, <laughs> to rats to bird brains. Mayor... Can I just thank him? My husband has a thing with the rats. Yeah. Like, you two should <laughs> That's go what patrol Brooklyn said. for the rats together. He's going to be so happy you asked that question. Well, Tim said, I said, Tim, what should I ask the mayor? He goes, ask him about the rats. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Real problem. <laughs> Eric Adams, I know you love Jalen Hurts because you got those Alabama roots. So that's why the Empire State was for the Eagles last night. Uh oh, <laughs> she's saying you're behind it, mayor. <laughs> <laughs> We've uncovered it, Mayor. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. But please come back. We love having you. Thank you.
Thank you. Take Thank care. You. Well, this week, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Biden will meet in person, sit down and talk about the looming economic crisis, the debt ceiling. What is this really going to entail since the White House said they're not compromising on that? We're live at the White House. Plus, a manhunt is underway for a suspect <clears throat> accused of kidnapping and assaulting a woman. What police say he is using to evade authorities and how it may be helping him search for new victims. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. All right, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Biden are going to come face to face on Wednesday to discuss raising the debt limit. McCarthy says he wants to reach a reasonable and responsible agreement and that cuts to Social Security and Medicare are off the table. But he's not ruling out cuts to defense spending, which some Republicans are against. I mean, big questions really about where the cuts will come from ultimately if that is what they are pushing for. The White House has said they will not negotiate over raising the country's $31.4 trillion debt limit. CNN's MJ Leave is live at the White House. MJ, I know the White House is confirming this meeting, but based on the language that they use talking about what the premise for this is, it doesn't sound like they're any closer to reaching a deal. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Caitlin. You know, this week we are about to see exactly what it means for President Biden that Republicans now control the House and that Kevin McCarthy is now the House Speaker and a compromise one uh, at that. We know that this is going to be the first time that the two men are meeting face to face since McCarthy became House Speaker. And we also know that he is facing tremendous pressure from conservative hardliners in his own caucus to extract deep spending cuts in exchange for raising the debt ceiling. Now, the White House, as you said, has repeatedly said that it is not going to make any concessions, that it is essentially not going to negotiate. But a White House spokesperson also said over the weekend the president will ask what the speaker's plan is when the two men meet on Wednesday. So at least indicating that they believe the ball is in his court right now and that at the very least the president is willing to hear him out. Uh, now, the possibility of a default and, of course, the default itself would be catastrophic for the economy and the Treasury Department, as you know has said that the so-called extraordinary measures that it is currently taking, that will take the country up until around early June to avoid a default. Uh, we know that this is potentially, uh, therefore, going to be a protracted negotiation. And at the end of the day, it could very much come down to the wire, Caitlin. Yeah, I mean, there's a major question about where those cuts ultimately come from. MJ Lee, thank you. Up next here on CNN This Morning, calling out those who push conspiracy theories about the Paul Pelosi attack now that the video debunks all of them. For the first time ever, two black quarterbacks will face off in the Super Bowl. The numbers behind an unprecedented matchup. In Memphis this morning, there are new questions about the group of the so-called Scorpion Unit involved in the beating death of Tyree Nichols, including the police chief's history with these specialized units. A manhunt this morning for a kidnapping suspect who may be using dating apps to avoid capture and find new victims. A chilling warning from an American general, the U.S. could be at war with China in the next two years. His reason and what the Pentagon is saying. 
and concert goers met with facial recognition cameras as they walked out of Madison Square Garden. Hear why and whether it's a slippery slope legally. CNN This Morning starts right now. So obviously there's a lot to cover, but we're going to begin with the Memphis Special Police Unit accused in Tyree Nichols' death now facing scrutiny. All five of the former officers were members of the recently created Scorpion Unit, which was tasked with tackling rising crime in the city. The Memphis Police Department announcing that they will permanently deactivate the unit. The police chief says it was created due to an outcry because of three years of violence in the city. This is one of three teams whose uh, primary responsibility is to reduce gun violence, to um, be visible in communities. We had record numbers in 2021, 346 homicides. So this unit was put together and they had great success. So joining us now to talk about it, CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, Mr. John Miller. John, good morning to you. Thank you. Uh, Wow. There's a lot to discuss here. The intent was good. The end result was a failure. That was an attorney for Nichols' family said. What do you know about this unit and, and what's going on now? Well, the Scorpion unit is a specialized unit like uh, a lot you see, especially in cities facing crime. <clears throat> and when you look at the Memphis crime picture, um, and the, the chief framed it a little bit, but this is a city that's poured millions into downtown, convention centers, mm-hmm. restaurants, venues, um, they lost a, a Hyatt Hotel construction deal because crime was just going up. Downtown, they had 4,000 crimes in 2022, 1,000 more than they had the year before. 30 cars broken into on one block. So sending these anti-crime teams um, that are your experienced officers, highly trained to go after predator criminals, makes sense in a place where you're having record murder, shootings, carjackings. The problem is, how long are they on the job? What's their level of experience? What was the level of, of supervision? Is there a sergeant with every team? And the answer was not long enough, not enough training, not enough supervision. They got three or four days, um, needed more than that. The basics were there. They had de-escalation training. They had some tactical training. But at the end of the day, they had to disband that unit because the name is poison now. No mm-hmm. pun intended about the Scorpion, Scorpion unit, right. but... Uh, you couldn't send teams out and have them show up in a community where they would say, who are you guys? And they said, we're Scorpion and get anything but a really negative reaction. Which is notable because this is something that city leaders had been touting since it was formed, saying that it was helping reduce crime. They were saying, look at the numbers, even the police chief there. And it is true that homicide numbers were up in Memphis, just like they were in a lot of places in the country. And so does this, what does this mean for the future of these highly specialized units? Aren't all of them going to be, you know, now associated with this beating of Tyree Nichols? You know, Caitlin, we went through this in New York City. Um, granted, it's a much larger police department, but we took our anti-crime units that were in plain clothes. We put them into hybrid uniforms, so it was very clear they were police. We gave them much more training. Um, they were trained in de-escalation. They were trained in ABLE. ABLE active bystander in law enforcement. That means if you're standing back and your partner's getting out of control, it's your job to get him or her under control as the rest of the team. And, you know, that has worked. They're still getting more guns than other units are. This unit was, they had the tactical piece down about getting the guns. They were making a lot of felony arrests and getting a lot of guns. 
but it only takes one incident like this or one team that has become poisoned um, to take the whole thing down. And we're watching that in real time now. I think the New York Times this morning did an excellent job of explaining just what he was up against. Tyree Nichols was up against 71 commands in 13 minutes. That's a headline. And it ticks through the contradictory orders that were given by these officers of things that Tyree could not do, like yelling at him to show his hands as they're holding his hands down, commanding him to get on the ground when he's already on the ground. Very good. Over and over and over again. How does that happen? Not by one officer, not by two, but five. Well, I would first say that nobody at the New York Times has ever tried to handcuff somebody who didn't want to be handcuffed. And I would look at that tape myself a few times to see when they're giving these commands, his position is changing back and forth all the time. But the fundamental problem is they're not functioning as a team that looks like they've worked together before in a similar situation. Uh, They're not functioning as a team that has practiced, you know, an arrest and control. This was a full-on failure. Yeah. John, I was in there in Memphis and just listening to you go tick through what was happening, the, the video, the sky cams or whatever. It was very, it was good that we had you here. It's very important that we have you here because I think you helped a lot of us get through this and understand what's going on. Um, and also these similar units around the country because not all of them have issues. No, it's, it's, it's the but people, they all face the same risk. They all face the same risk, but it's the people who are in those units and not necessarily the units and the names and all of that. And the chief got it. The yeah. chief got it. Supervision was her problem. Yeah. She knew that. She said, I have a span of control problem, which just in English, that means I don't have enough sergeants. You need that one person who can slow that down. And that person clearly wasn't there. And more to discuss. And you'll be here on CNN throughout the day and coming weeks and months to talk about this. Thank you, John Miller. I appreciate it. Straight ahead, we need to tell you that Van Jones is going to be live with us on his new CNN opinion piece and the debate over the role of race in the Tyree Nichols murder. Or death, I should say. Also this morning, an extremely dangerous kidnapping suspect who tortured a woman in Oregon is still on the loose this morning. He may be using dating apps to lure new victims and manipulate people into helping him. That is the warning we are hearing from police as the manhunt for the person, Benjamin Foster, is continuing. Investigators have been looking at him since last Tuesday when they found a woman who was tied up, severely beaten, and unconscious. Lucy Kavanaugh is following this case for us. Lucy, he has been on the run for it's about, about a week now. Police say they need the public's help. Are they any closer to finding him? They're not, Caitlin. I mean, they were able to identify him relatively quickly as 36-year-old Benjamin Obadiah Foster. They released several photos of him, along with a new statement yesterday night, actually, in which they're warning the public, and I quote, it is possible that Benjamin Foster may attempt to change his appearance by shaving his beard and hair or both, and by uh, or by changing his hair color. Uh, they are asking the public to pay particular attention to his facial structure and eyes, since those features are obviously difficult to change. Again, he's on the run, subject of this intensive round-the-clock search. This woman was found last Tuesday, as you point out, beaten into unconsciousness. The district attorney said that he tried to kill her while intentionally torturing her and secretly confining her in a place where she was not likely to be found. She's now hospitalized in critical condition. Now, he fled that scene before officers arrived. Um, This was last Tuesday. They then searched another area about 20 miles north with a SWAT team. They found several pieces of evidence, including his car and a woman who they believe was hiding him out. They arrested her, but he escaped again. Again, Caitlin, he is on the run. He is being charged with attempted murder, kidnapping and assault. 
Yeah, that's so discomforting for that community. Lucy Kavanaugh, thank you for staying on this. You cannot watch this video and not be horrified by it. And we're going to dig into this and discuss it a little bit more, a lot more, actually, as a matter of fact. When 82-year-old Paul Pelosi was attacked inside his home, conspiracy theorists called it uh, a gay tryst, a lover's quarrel, a prostitute visit gone wrong. And then, of course, the video came out proving it to be all BS. Elected Republicans, right-wing media hosts, high-profile business leaders all pushed the baseless conspiracies, all pushed the BS. Elon Musk tweeted a bogus link to his 100 million followers that it could have been a fight with a male prostitute. Three months later, he tweeted a very short apology. Donald Trump Jr. shared this picture at the time, a crude joke about Paul Pelosi Halloween costume. Representatives Claudia Tenney and Clay Higgins shared posts in the same vein. Then there was the unfounded theory that the two men were friends. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene peddled that idea, but it's not true. We hear Paul Pelosi say as much in the newly released 911 call. Listen. This gentleman just uh, came into the house. Uh, and he wants to wait here for my wife to come home. Zero, two, and so, uh, three, four, and 48. Anyway, do, you know, do you know who the person is? No, I don't know who he is. Another theory, that it wasn't really a break-in. Former President Donald Trump and others pushed the theory that there was glass inside and outside the house. He says it seemed like a breakout. But you can see with your own eyes, there's David DePath breaking in with a hammer. Senator Ted Cruz lamented in a retweet at the time that he that we might never know for sure what happened inside the Pelosi home. But the video, the 911 call, they paint a pretty clear picture for everyone. And if that's not enough, the attacker called a San Francisco reporter from jail on Friday. Listen. Freedom of liberty isn't dying. It's being killed systematically and deliberately. The people killing it have names and addresses. So I got their names and addresses so I could pay them a little visit. I want to apologize to everyone. I messed up. What I did was really bad. I'm so sorry I didn't get more of them. It's my own fault. No one else is to blame. I should have come better prepared. So now what, that you've put these conspiracy theories out there and you've disparaged an 82-year-old man. Let's discuss that now and talk about it with Editor-in-Chief of Semaphore, Mr. Ben Smith. Ben, thank you for joining us. So, Thanks for having me, Don. This one is really outrageous to me because I think um, I feel like it sort of the what happened in Memphis overshadowed this video coming out. And I thought this is a really important story considering what I just talked about. This was awful. Elected Republicans, members of conservative media making up these conspiracy theories. And now it's just like eh, it never really happened. Yeah, there's this. I mean, God, that call is so chilling that he, yeah. where he's, you know, his only regret is he didn't get more people. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, I think there's this whole strain of populist politics that kind of relies on, well, you know, we're just asking questions. Maybe nothing is true. You can't trust the police. You can't trust any authorities. You can basically just trust whatever you feel to be true, which is we hate these people. It's probably their fault. They're probably lying. And so there was just this, you know, very broad embrace of totally crazy conspiracy theories. You know, often there's an element in this particular case of sort of leering at some sexual motive. Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, it was pretty incredible. And then just the sort of grudging 
half apologies are just, you know, kind of the worst part. It's just one more follow for you. Listen, it, the discussion is, do you talk about these things? Because then you give, you know, you're giving um, oxygen to the conspiracy theorists, to the Fox News of the world, right? With all the, and then I don't know if they go back and retract them. Most, most of the time they don't. It just, it just became um, content for them. The question, the question is, this should be called out more by members of the media. It should not, not be ignored. What they did was absolutely repugnant, and they'll move on and pretend that it was okay. The Don Juniors of the world, elevating and promoting them, putting people like that on the air to interview them, and, and just adding to these conspiracy theories. So then what gives? What do we do? What's our responsibility as members of the media? I mean, I think it's, it's a tricky question. And the old rule is, you, you know, you, that you don't repeat this stuff. That if, you know, that, that if you, on your show, don't talk about this, no one will ever hear about it. And that's sort of the old pre-internet approach to this kind of thing. But I mean, this story is, is the obvious counterexample where, where this guy was, I mean, it's sort of a full circle because this guy himself, the attacker, was sort of swimming in these waters. That's what motivated him to go and, and, and attack Pelosi in the, the first election place. was stolen waters. That's what right. he was Yeah, and so you can't, and so the, I mean, it's, I think it's a very tricky question for journalists. And, and it's not like there's sil some silver bullet where, you know, if you've only you say the right magic words, people will know that this is false and this is true. I mean, I think it's this broad decline of trust in the media, of trust in institutions that opens a door to people to really just believe whatever they feel like believing. I, you just said the internet. So it made me think of how much worse social media has made all of this. I mean, you were the, the media reporter for the New York Times. Newspapers give context. CNN gives context. Social media often does not. And I've been thinking a lot about chat, GPT, and what that's going to mean for our future and replacing some parts of journalism and all of that. And just what you, where you think this goes from here, given all of that. You know, maybe I'm an optimist. I think there's a pretty big audience who actually doesn't enjoy the sort of like weird lies and speculation as video game on Twitter aspect of, of, I think, what, you know, what Elon Musk sort of considers citizen journalism, but is really just, yeah, just, pay, just allowing this total disconnect from reality, as in this case. I mean, I don't, you know, I think our being replaced by ChatGPT is, a, you know, is, is, is its own difficult moment. But I don't know. I think that a lot of, there's a lot of people out there who, are, who don't particularly enjoy this kind of thing and, and, and who are looking for I mean, the pendulum swings, and I think the pendulum is actually swinging back. And that's why you see, I mean, among other things, these social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, really struggling right now. Ben, thank you. I hope you're right. I hope that pendulum is on the way back. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ben. Thanks. Well, the Virginia school, elementary school, where that six-year-old shot his teacher, that school reopens today. What students will see, how it will be different when they come back. Plus, Eagles fans flooded the streets of Philadelphia after their team punched a ticket to the Super Bowl. We have more on the historic matchup against the Kansas City Chiefs with Harry Enton. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. How about this beautiful trophy? Huh? Hey, I got some wise words for that Cincinnati mayor. Know your role and shut your mouth, you jabroni. You gotta fight for your right to party! <laughs> 
It was a good night last night. The Kansas City Chiefs and the Philadelphia Eagles are set to meet at Super Bowl 57. This after the Chiefs snuck by in a 23-20 victory over the Cincinnati Bengals. The Eagles blew out the San Francisco 49ers earlier in the day, 31-7. Joining us now with this morning's number is CNN's. <laughs> I mean, I, we could just replay that. I would and love it. Jalen Hurts singing, which was like the greatest moment I've seen on TV lately. Um, but the morning number, we want to talk about who's going to be favored here when this happens in two weeks from now. Yeah. You look at the Eagles roster, it's kind of hard to find a, a weakness in it. Yeah, I mean, this morning's number is it's two. So that's how much the Philadelphia Eagles are favored to win the Super Bowl in two weeks by their favorite win by two points over the Kansas City Chiefs. And this is a great Super Bowl, you know, as you sort of pointed out, because what we have is the AFC's number one seed in the Chiefs versus the NFC's number one seed in the NFC, the Philadelphia Eagles. This has been happening more frequently where the one seed is playing the one seed. It used to not really happen frequently, but we've been getting better and better Super Bowls, Caitlin. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. 2010, 1994 is when it happened. Okay, but the two quarterbacks here are the ones that are getting everyone's attention. I love Jalen Hurts, obviously. He went to Alabama, but Patrick Mahomes is, is amazing as well. And he was playing with one good ankle yesterday. He's been playing with one good <laughs> ankle. He is the youngest quarterback ever to reach three Super Bowls at just the age of 27, he beats out Tom Brady, who is also 27. You can see Roethlisberger and Bob Greasy, both at 28. He, Mahomes beat Brady by just 40 days, 40 days. But you were pointing out how good the Eagles are. The average playoff win margin after the conference championship games since 1970-71, the Eagles have won by, get this, an average of 27.5 points. I think that's why the Eagles are slightly favored in this matchup. The line's been kind of going through different things. But the Eagles, very, very strong. You look at these other teams on the list, two of them easily won the Super Bowl. But, of course, my Buffalo Bills lost by a Yeah, we point. all know. Uh, what about the two quarterbacks, though, also that stands out? Because there, there's a bit of history that's happening Yeah, here. this is the first Super Bowl to have two black starting quarterbacks. All I can say is it's about darn time. That's what I have to say. It's a historic matchup, and I'm really looking forward to seeing it, Caitlin. And they're both so talented. They're I'm really excited so for the good. Super Bowl. They're both so good. So good. It's going to be great. When are you, you going to be watching? I'm not sure. Maybe we can watch together. Okay, we'll see. Right. I'll, I'll think about it. Right. Ariadne, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Don, Thanks, back to you. Thanks, Harry. An alarming prediction from a U.S. Air Force general, why he says the country could be going to war with China in as little as two years. That's straight ahead. Welcome back. This morning, students are returning to Virginia, uh, Virginia Elementary School, Richneck Elementary. This is nearly a month after a six-year-old student in that school brought a gun in and shot his teacher in class. Richneck Elementary has installed metal detectors. Students will be given clear book bags, and the principal has been reassigned. Our Brian Todd is live for us this morning in Newport News, Virginia. You can even imagine being one of those parents, thinking about you know, having that talk, sending your kids back to school. What are you hearing? That's right, Poppy. A very anxious day as uh, students and teachers file back in here. Classes resume in about an hour. We've been talking to a couple of teachers off camera as they made their way in this morning. One of them just told me she's excited to be back here. A very significantly enhanced security footprint in place here at Richneck Elementary for this first day back. As you mentioned, they're making the students uh, carry around clear, transparent backpacks, not allowing them to bring their regular backpacks to school. The two state-of-the-art metal detectors are now in place. We've seen several Newport News police officers, including the police chief, Steve Drew, here at the entrance greeting people as they've come in. Now, police officers, school resource officers will not be deployed here, but they will have security officers, other security officers here uh, from now on as well. They did have 
uh, that imprint there even before the shooting, but it was one security officer splitting duties between elementary schools. That will now be enhanced. Still, parents are very anxious. We talked to one parent of a child whose son, uh, whose son is in the same class as the shooter, Thomas Britton, about whether he has confidence in sending his child back to the school. Here's what he had to say. I think with new administration, this administration that listens to teachers, listens to concerns, and acts on those concerns, you know, threats, treat threats as credible until they're not, not the other way of <laughs> you have to do it before the threat is credible. Um, this is probably going to be the safest school in the area for, for a good long while, kind of an ironic twist. So I have no misgivings about sending them back. And we've also learned that the principal who was here at Richneck on the day of the shooting, her name, Brianna Foster Newton, has been reassigned to another job in the school system. School officials not telling us exactly mm -hmm. what that job is, but she is no longer here. The vice principal had also yeah. previously resigned after the shooting. Bobby. And that's what parents told us over the last few weeks, Brian. They felt like they went unheard over and over again by that school administration. Thank you for being there. Right. Thanks for your reporting. Caitlin. A U.S. Air Force general is predicting that the United States and China will go to war in 2025, just two years from now. The Washington Post reporting that General Michael Minihan sent a memo to troops under his command that said, quote, I hope I'm wrong. My gut tells me we will fight in 2025. Taiwan's presidential elections are in 2024 and will offer Xi a reason. United States presidential elections are in 2024 and will offer Xi a distracted America. She's team, reason, and opportunity are all aligned for 2025. Asked about this memo, a Pentagon spokesman told CNN these are not these comments are not representative of the department's view on China. Meanwhile, the Republican chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Michael McCall, said he thinks that he's right, actually. I hope he's wrong as well. I think he's right, though. We have to be prepared for this. Um, and it could happen. I think as long as Biden is in office <clears throat> projecting weakness, as he did with Afghanistan that led to Putin invading uh, in Ukraine, uh, that the odds are very high we could see a conflict uh, with China and Taiwan and the Indo-Pacific. Joining us now to talk about this is CNN military analyst and retired U.S. Army General Dana Pittard. Thank you so much, General, for being here. I think just first, the obvious question is, what did you make of that memo when you saw it? Well, good morning, Caitlin. Uh, what I thought of that memo, memo from uh, General Minahan uh, and his candor uh, throughout the military is well known, is that it was really designed for his subordinate commanders and the men and women in his command. As any good commander, he's got to prepare for war. He's got to make sure that his command is prepared. I think the last thing he wanted was for the, a memo like that to get out and go viral. Uh, but I think it was really about preparation. Uh, preparation, sure, but putting this blunt warning in a memo that, of course, as you noted, is now out there. It was something certainly that could be. He was also, you know, pretty blunt, telling them to get their personal affairs in order, making these comments about this. We've seen some Democrats disagree with this. Adam Smith, who is on the uh, Armed Services Committee, said not only is war with China not inevitable, he said he doesn't think it's likely. Well, again, his, his comments were were in somewhat bombastic uh, to, to motivate probably his command. But America's uh, military strategy is centered around the Asia-Pacific region now. And all potential adversaries are certainly on the table, especially uh, China. Uh, and so we must be prepared. Is war imminent for 2025? 
Well, I think the senior leadership of the uh, Department of Defense would probably disagree, because if war was Im imminent, there would be things that we would be doing uh, to, to specifically prepare for that if it was 2025. So I, I think in some ways he's, he's gotten ahead of his skis a little bit on that, but he's trying to motivate and prepare his supporting command. Again, he is not a combatant commander. Uh, what, what his command does, the Air Mobility Command, is, is fly in troops, equipment, ammunition, and things like that. Um, he's a supporting commander. Yeah, and so much of that is also, you know, being prepared and talking about if Taiwan has the defenses that it needs. All of this is a broader conversation that's coming, of course, amid Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You saw recently how the United States said they will be sending tanks to Ukraine. Big questions about how long it's going to take those to actually get there. Now the Ukrainians are asking for fighter jets, but the German chancellor says this morning they're not going to get them, at least not from Germany. Do you think that's something the U.S. should take into consideration? I do, Caitlin. Uh, I think that we should have sent jets a long time ago, uh, at least MiG-29s, MiG-27s that the Ukrainians at least knew how to fly. But they, if they're going to take back their territory, they're going to need modern equipment, uh, which includes um, aircraft, uh, fighter jets, and bombers. All right, retired General Dana Pittard, thank you so much for joining us this morning on these really important subjects. Thank you, Caitlin. Controversy at the garden. How the owner at Madison Square Garden is using facial recognition to ban the owner's enemies. Plus, you know the music. He's the man behind some of your favorite Motown songs ahead. We remember the life and the legacy of Barrett Strong. One of Motown's original mainstays and its first hit maker, Barrett Strong, has died at the age of 81. You may remember this classic. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I, I, I mean, that is a classic. And also this one. He's also known for writing Marvin Gaye's I Heard It Through the Grapevine. And these other massive soul hits for some of Motown's biggest stars. Listen. Motown founder Barry Gordy said this in a statement, I am saddened to hear of the passing of Barrett Strong, one of my earliest artists and the man who sang my first big hit, Money, That's What I Want, in 1959. Barrett was not only a great singer and piano player, but he, along with his writing partner Norman Whitfield, created an incredible body of work, primarily with The Temptations. My heartfelt condolences go out to his family and friends. Yeah, absolutely. Also this morning, the company that owns Madison Square Garden, Radio City Music Hall, and other famous New York venues says that all lawyers who work at firms representing a client suing them are banned. MSG Entertainment is denying entry to anyone on its exclusion list from attending concerts or sporting events. Here's what's a key part of this. They are using facial recognition technology to do it. CNN's Omar Jimenez is covering this story. This is remarkable. A, because of the facial recognition aspect, but B, it, it's not just 
the attorneys who are involved in the suing. It's any attorneys that work at the firms that are representing those who are suing these uh, venues. And I think that was a surprise for a lot of people. It's like, I'm not even involved in the litigation of this, and all of a sudden I am banned, at least temporarily, as well. And it's part of what New York Attorney General Letitia James is concerned about here, not just potentially dissuading those from holding Madison Square Garden uh, entertainment potentially accountable, but also the technology involved with it, MSG maintains they are fully within their rights. You come up on a matching somebody on a facial recognition list? He was recognized on facial recognition cameras, then confronted. Are you Benjamin Norin? Yes. This is how lawyer Benjamin Norin from one New York City law firm was greeted by Madison Square Garden staff while trying to attend an event in the fall. The ticket has been revoked and you are not permitted in the building. It's because Norin works for a law firm representing ticket brokers in a lawsuit against Madison Square Garden Entertainment. All the roughly 60 lawyers at his firm are also banned until the litigation is resolved. We received a, a letter from uh, MSG uh, stating that because of this litigation, all attorneys in our firm, even those attorneys who have nothing to do whatsoever with the litigation, would be barred for the duration of the litigation. The firm's co-founding partner has been a season ticket holder for 47 years. He believes here he's being retaliated against. The purpose of their ban is to dissuade people from suing Madison Square Garden. If you have to think about, do I have a choice of being banned and representing somebody? Somebody's going to say, I don't need that aggravation. I'm not going to take that case. Their firm is among dozens temporarily banned from MSG properties, including Radio City Music Hall, while they represent clients suing the Garden. New York Attorney General Letitia James believes they may be violating state and city laws, writing to them in part, forbidding entry to lawyers representing clients who have engaged in litigation against the company may dissuade such lawyers from taking on legitimate cases. Days later, Madison Square Garden emphasized it's a private business and in compliance with all laws, writing in part, the attorneys we're prohibiting from attending include ambulance chasers and money grabbers whose business is motivated by self-promotion and who capitalize on the misfortune of others. This includes attorneys representing ticket scalpers, personal injury claims, and class action litigations, but does not include claims related to sexual harassment or employment discrimination. You get to say who you serve. And if it's somebody who is suing you and trying to put you out of business or take your money from you, right, etc., you have a right to be, yes, a little uh, unhappy about it. You know, it doesn't seem like they're, they're letting up. If anything, they've been doubling no, down. No, no, they're tripling down even. Some experts believe it's a slippery slope and not just the discretionary power of who else could be flagged in the future, but one method being used to enforce it even if it is legal. I have read their privacy policy. They explicitly say that the biometrics they capture from you can be used for any purpose that would that would uh, benefit their economic interest. There's all sorts of things they could be doing with face recognition, and there's so minimal transparency around it because they're a private company. Some don't believe it should be used at all. It's so primed to be misused. It's so prone to discrimination. And I am terrified of the day where we allow companies to use so many forms of tracking and surveillance that you know we end up in the middle of one of the largest cities on the planet without any place we can actually go while keeping our privacy. 
Now, Madison Square Garden says they've been using facial recognition to help create a safe environment since 2018. But there are a lot of factors here that people are concerned about. They've got until February 13th to respond to Attorney General James's inquiries. Obviously, though, still an ongoing battle here. Yeah, and not just for this specifically, but facial recognition technology at large. Omar, that was a great report. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Totally fascinated by it. Thank you very much. Well, there is a growing debate over the role of race in the police beating and death of Tyree Nichols. While, while all five ex-officers are black, could their actions have been racially motivated? Van Jones has a fascinating new piece on this. He's here to explain. People don't know what those five police officers did to our family. And they really don't know what they did to their own families. They have put their own families in harm's way. They have brought shame to their own families. They brought shame to the black community. Well, there's a lot to talk about. That was Ravon Wells, by the way, talking about the former Memphis police officers who were involved in the violent arrest and death of her son, Tyree Nichols. The five officers, or ex-officers, who have so far been charged with Nichols' death are all black, but Wells points out that the race of the officer isn't as important as the race of the victim. It's a point our next guest agrees with, and he wrote about it in a CNN.com opinion piece, and that is none other than Mr. Van Jones, CNN political commentator, uh, Van, hello to you. Thank you for joining. Look, mm. a, a very nuanced conversation. I'm so glad you're doing this. So let me just give our viewers a glimpse of what you're saying, and then we'll go into the discussion. You write in this uh, piece that uh, it's always been too simplistic to look at police abuse or misconduct as white cop kills unarmed black man. And you add, when it comes to police violence, race does not matter, but possibly not the way you think. At the end of the day, it is the race of the victim who is brutalized, not the race of the violent cop. Uh, that is more relevant in determining whether racial bias is a factor in, in police violence. And then you go on to talk about, you know, explain more. So explain what you're talking about here mm -hmm. to our viewers. Well, well, I, I do think that um, this is an opportunity for us to have a deeper conversation. Um, you might ask, if you have a black police chief, as you do, a majority black police force, as you do, and five black officers, as you do, Certainly racism has nothing to do with this case. And I think that that is um, um, not right. Uh, what you have to begin to look at is, um, if the overwhelming number of victims of police abuse are black in Memphis, as they are, um, and disproportionate as they are, then racial bias is a factor. Mm -hmm. And how could that possibly be? It's because of cultural policing. There are certain neighborhoods where there they are. It's a warrior mentality. This is a war zone. You got to do what you got to do. You got to jump out. You get. And in other neighborhoods, the same police department treats with a servant mentality, with a protector mentality. And if those two mindsets line up with this is a poor black community, we're a war zone. We're going to be warriors. We're going to do whatever we got to do. And the affluent white communities, we're going to protect people. Then you wind up with racial uh, uh, profiling racial violence, even when the cops are black. Hmm. Reading your piece, Van, I thought about uh, what James Foreman, uh, professor at Yale Law School, who wrote that great recent book, Locking Up Our Own, uh, says. And then he was quoted in The Times this weekend, and he said, blackness doesn't shield you from all of the forces that make police violence possible. It, it's interesting because it seems like the first time, at least recently, that our country is having to face having a much more nuanced conversation about race and policing. 
And that's your point. Well, well, first of all, I love James Foreman. We were in law school together. Yeah. Uh, we were in law school together. Uh, his mother is my godmother, so you know we, we didn't talk about this, but we were kind of looking at it the same way. Uh, listen, uh, this is only a discussion at the high level. In the community level, people know. Uh, uh, cops, a lot of times, they're not black, they're blue. Uh, they're often trying to show and prove to other white officers that they can be just as tough and just as brutal or even more brutal than the white cops. Ice Cube talked about that in a very famous uh, hip-hop song, which I can't quote the name of it, but he says, um, don't let it be a white and a black cop because they'll slam you down to the uh, street top, black police showing out for the white cop. James uh, Baldwin talked about this phenomenon mm-hmm. of black police officers actually being more brutal than the white cops. So the idea that some people had, well, if you integrate the police force, if you have a bunch of, uh, a bunch of black police, everybody's going to be safe. Black faces in high places don't make you safe mm-hmm. if there are not checks and balances and systems of accountability. Any, any system uh, without checks and balances will tend toward corruption and abuse. That's why you have meat inspectors, not because you hate butchers. That's why you have building inspectors, not because you hate construction workers, but because if you don't have adequate oversight and everybody in the department knows in that neighborhood you can do whatever you want, people will begin to act terribly. And all too often, even with majority black departments, it's the black communities where uh, unlawful police violence takes place. There is no accountability. There is no punishment. And it gets worse and worse and worse. Thankfully, in Memphis, uh, this police chief has stepped up. But don't act like just because you have black police officers, they could not be targeting black communities for misconduct because clearly here they are. And Van, you're well connected in Washington. You know this. And I have a question because this has really renewed the focus on police reform and what that could potentially look like coming from Capitol Hill. Every lawmaker is being asked about this. But Jim Jordan yesterday said uh, this is a quote. The Democrats always think it's a new law that is going to fix something that terrible. He said, we kind of think that no law is going to fix that. What do you think of that? Is there any, what could they do actually here? Well, well first of all, well, if you had that attitude toward uh, lawbreakers, then why have any laws? Because you, you will always have lawbreakers, but that doesn't mean you don't have laws and you don't try to enforce them. Uh, there's some things that we aren't even talking about that we should be. Federal money goes to local law enforcement every day, and yet there is no standard for local law enforcement to screen for sociopaths, for psychopaths at all. People don't, people don't know that. You literally have uh, 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 you know, thousands of police departments. They are hiring every day. There is no federal standard to make sure we don't have sociopaths and psychopaths. Start with that. Uh, if you don't want to deal with the racial aspect, if you don't want to deal with other aspects, start with that. Why can't we have a federal standard that says if you are a sociopath or a psychopath, you can't be on the police force? There is so much room uh, for improvement in terms of how the federal government both empowers and holds accountable local law enforcement that we haven't even begun to talk mm. about. Van, we had the mayor on this morning. I, I interviewed the police chief and she said it takes race off the table. The mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, was on this morning saying, I don't necessarily agree with that, understand what she was trying to say, uh, but he didn't agree with it. And you don't agree with that as well. And I know there are critics online, online and just in general, and, and I know you are going to go on Twitter or whatever and respond to critics. So here's your opportunity. What do you say to that? Because you have the mayor agreeing with you uh, and others as well. Go on. Well, I think there's some people that they, they don't understand the way that racism functions. And if it's not a cartoon example of a white cop and an unarmed black person, then they say race cannot happen. But we know, you know, Don, uh, self-hatred is real. Uh, people, uh, these, these messages 
that black people are violent, black people are, are unworthy, black people are suspect, they hit everybody. It's not just you know, a, a few white guys listening to this, it's pervasive. And so all too often, all too often, even a, a black store owner might see a black kid come in and be suspicious, uh, see a white kid come in and be solicitous, and not even realize that he or she is playing out these same racial stereotypes that they otherwise would oppose. It's, it's not as simple. It's the race of the victim you have to track. If you have an overwhelming number of black victims, you have a problem with racism, even if there are black cops doing it. In most countries, the human rights abusers look just like the people they are abusing. And that's what happens uh, all around the world. It's, Van, you hit the nail on the head with this topic. This is exactly what was being discussed around dinner tables and people gathering this weekend. And that's all I talked about. But all the cops were black. It can't be racist. And would they have treated a white suspect like, I mean, it went. So good on you for doing this piece. Thank you, Van. Thanks for having me. Thank you. It's oh, a great piece. CNN. Everyone should yeah. read it. Yeah, everyone should read it on CNN.com. We'll see you here tomorrow. Thanks so much for being with us. CNN Newsroom is now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.